Welcome to Mental Health in Focus, a platform for talking all things mental health. Expand your knowledge by joining our expert hosts as they go beyond the 101. Hello and welcome to this third episode in our podcast series, Emergency Workers Responder Assist. The series is a partnership between Phoenix Australia's Responder Assist, which is the Centre for Excellence in Emergency Worker Mental Health, and also the Mental Health Professionals Network. My name is Mark, Mark Creamer, and I've got the pleasure and the honour of hosting this series. In our first episode, we looked at the kinds of problems that first responders might experience and why. And in the second, we looked at what the organisation can do, as well as peers and colleagues, to help and support other workers. Today, in this third episode, we're going to move on to what we call Level 3. So that's about treating the more serious, diagnosable mental health conditions in first responders. And we're going to look at some of the challenges that they may pose. And to help me do that, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my co-host for this episode, Jane Nursey. Jane is Head of Clinical Services at Phoenix Australia. She's a clinical neuropsychologist with enormous clinical and research experience. And of particular relevance for today, Jane oversaw the development and the implementation of Blue Hub and Responder Assist clinical programs at Phoenix. So welcome, Jane. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Mark. Great to be here. We've been talking over the last couple of episodes, I should say, about some of the problems that first responders might develop, but we have been tending to focus on what we might call subclinical problems, so things like irritability and relationship problems and work problems and so on. But clearly, a proportion of people will go on to develop diagnosable mental health conditions. So I'm wondering what we think are the most common, the most likely diagnostic conditions that we might see as health professionals that we might see in our first responder population? So we often see a broad range of of different disorders arising following a a post-traumatic event. And probably the most common is depression. You know, many people present, given that sort of overwhelming nature of the events, the sense of helplessness, hopelessness that can go along with them. I'm very glad you said that, Jane, because I was worried that you might jump straight in with PTSD. And I think that's a bit of an error perhaps that we make, isn't it? To look for PTSD all the time. Yeah, I think so. I think that particularly in emergency service workers, the the post-traumatic label and and they will put injury behind Mm -hmm. it rather than disorder you know, is is seen as something that, that fits for them and, and makes sense for them. So I think particularly in that population, post-PTSD mm. is often the first thing that people think about mm. and clinicians also will, will tend to go and looking for that as well. Exactly. And, and military populations as well, I guess. Similar Indeed. Kind of thing. Military yeah, yeah, veterans, yeah. yeah. Okay. But um, so I, I didn't want to dismiss PTSD at all. I guess that's one of the diagnoses that we are looking for. Yeah. But there's a whole range of others too. I mean, certainly uh, a range of anxiety disorders can arise following trauma. So things like generalised anxiety disorder, uh, specific phobias, social anxiety, panic attacks, those sorts of things are also pretty common. We also very commonly see substance use disorders. Mm. So people turn to the use of illicit substances or prescription medications as a way of calming themselves down, managing their symptoms. Mm. And often a bit different to Alex, who who you spoke with last time, you know, often the more common presentation is a comorbid 
presentation. So people might present with PTSD and depression and a substance use disorder. I should just say, in case people are getting confused, that that was in a slightly different series called In the First Person, but it's about a a first responder, so I strongly encourage you to look at it on the MHPN website. Thanks, Jane. And that point about substance use, I think, is really important. I'd like to pick it up in just a minute with our first guest, actually, because I do want to move on and talk a little bit about some of the challenges that we might face as health professionals working with first responders. And so to help us do that, as I say, I'd like to bring in our first guest, Professor Andrea Phelps. Andrea is a clinical psychologist and deputy director of Phoenix Australia, and she has enormous clinical and research experience with post-traumatic mental health and a especially with first responders. So welcome, Andrew, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. We're talking about treating some of these diagnosable conditions. I guess that many of us are committed to what we would call evidence-based treatment. And I know that you have a particular interest in guidelines and so on. Can you just tell us a little bit about what we mean by evidence-based treatment? Sure, yeah. So evidence-based treatments are really represent a summary of what the research tells us is most likely to be helpful for most people most of the time. I think one of the the really important things to bear in mind is that they are intended as guidelines rather than prescriptions. So, you know, we we say that, for instance, for um, PTSD, as we've just been mentioning, trauma-focused therapies are what we call evidence-based treatment. The idea of the guidelines is that practitioners take that on board, they know what that is, they have the appropriate training, but they also use their clinical judgment and they talk to the individual who's sitting in front of them to see what would work best for them. So picking up on Jane's point about the number of different disorders that we see Mm -hmm. following trauma it's very often the case that it's people present with more than one yeah. disorder. So we have to be so quite flexible. I do take that point. In fact, I would like to go on to that in just a second. But I guess for people who are listening, thinking, ah, oh, these guidelines are fine, but they don't apply to my clients. You know, my clients are different or my clients are particularly complex or difficult or whatever. Our message would be these should still be the first line treatment. And is that right? And only if that doesn't work after they've had a therapeutic dose, then we can start thinking about second-line treatment. That's right. And really, the research that's been done has used a huge variety of people. So Mm. some people used to think that guidelines are just based on the most pure patients who've only got one single disorder and it's a simple trauma, for instance. And so the criticism was always, well, that's not my patient. My patient has had multiple traumas. They've been a serving member of police or ambulance for so many years, they have so many traumatic events, guidelines don't really apply to them. That's simply not the case. We know that no matter how complex the trauma someone has experienced, your best chance of success is evidence-based treatments. And as you say, it's only if someone has had their best shot at evidence-based treatments and they're not doing the the job, they're Mm. not recovering, Mm. 
then you might start to think about what could I add to that or what could I do a bit differently. Okay. But certainly not throwing the bath... Baby out with the, the bath baby water. Baby out with the mean, bath yes. water, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. What I'd like to suggest is that we put some links to the main guidelines on the page that uh, our listeners can that, get hold of. That would of. be great. But essentially, yes, we're talking generally, I suppose, for PTSD and depression and so on. PTSD certainly, as you say, trauma-focused psychological treatments, main first line, perhaps pharmaco second line. And in depression, I guess perhaps even things like behavioural activation and cognitive restructuring and Mm. pharmacotherapy and so on and so forth. So key thing is, yeah, look at the guidelines if if you're not too sure. But I do want to pick up on what you were alluding to earlier. And, and, you know, I guess as clinicians, we would probably recognise that there are often adjunct things we can do. I was going to say adjunct therapies. That's probably not quite the right word. But things that we might do to address certain behavioural problems, for example. We might look at social reintegration or, you know, sort of we talk about reclaiming their lives sometimes. Or, we, yeah, we might talk about certain symptom management strategies, you know, sort of self-soothing, which could be anything, I suppose, from massage to pets or whatever. Mm, or, or Walks in nature for e- some people. Exactly. Walks in nature. Absolutely. And my personal favourite aerobic exercise, which I'm a, a great believer in. So I, I guess I'll just ask both of you whether, you know, that's okay to be using these kinds of things as an adjunct? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're an important part of the treatment, really. And you really want to be attacking this at a broad level and in a holistic level. And that means, you know, improving and increasing physical exercise, looking after diet, doing symptom relief in terms of teaching a whole range of different relaxation techniques because they're not always going to work all of the time and having a a repertoire to pull on is Mm. is important. Mm. I think the other thing is, though, adjunctive treatments that help engagement and and manage things like concentration and memory problems that engage them better in the treatment that they're having is are also important. Very good point. And so likely to make the treatment more effective, in fact, the evidence-based treatment more effective if we can address these other things. Very, very good point. I quite agree. So no one's saying that we're not allowed to use them. What we are saying is, let's remember, they're not probably the curative component of our treatment per se. I think that's right. But they are addressing some of the issues that can be really important for quality of life. Exactly. And, and I think that's where coming back to actually speaking to the person in front of you working out what what would improve their life and you know very much our focus is on evidence-based treatments but it's also looking more holistically about what are the other aspects of their life that they would like to pursue uh, you know improvements in whether it be relationships or uh, hobbies or absolutely and remembering that working on what's important for them is always going to be a, an important component of driving therapy. I'm also interested, though, in whether there are perhaps unique challenges in working with this population. And one of the issues that's often raised is the proposed difficulty of engaging this population in treatment, of getting them into treatment. Do you think that's an issue? And, and, you know, why does it happen? Look, I think it is an issue for several reasons, but things like people who serve in emergency services who have that way of thinking of self-reliance and don't necessarily, they're not necessarily the first people to put their hands up to go and seek help, but more likely start off with the idea of, I've gotten through so much in my life, I can get through this as well, I can just do it by myself. And unfortunately, we know that sometimes you just can't and that when someone has developed a mental health disorder, getting the best 
treatment available is actually a really mm. important consideration. I, I think it's an important point, and there's quite a bit of research, isn't there, that shows if you ask people, why didn't you get treatment, that's the first response you'll usually get. I thought I could manage it myself. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and people will often go for months or even years trying to manage it themselves, and, and off, often what we see is that it's partners or family members who in the end say, you need to yeah. go and see someone, and that's what motivates them to come in very often. So, yeah, that's a factor. Perhaps a little bit of suspicion, a little bit of mistrust... I think there's also sometimes some legitimate concern about what the impact might be on their careers. So particularly for people uh, who carry weapons as part of their role, the idea that they'll end up losing their permits to carry those weapons and therefore can no longer be operational in the true sense of the word. So I think that's often also uh, something that... It is, isn't it? It's it's a crucial issue and it's so important that actually uh, we're going to bring our next guest in in just a minute and we're going to talk about some of those issues about going back to work. So it's a really important issue. I quite agree. Absolutely. I just did want to say, although I think in my experience um, they can be a difficult group to engage in treatment, that my experience also is that once they are engaged they are good, they're committed, they do the work and they hang in there. You know, It's fairly rare that they drop out, I would say, first responders. So I think what goes with that is making sure that the clinician has a cultural awareness and understanding of the, the work environment that they're working in because I think that also often is a barrier. Once they connect with someone who they think does understand their, you know, the difficulties in the workplace and what they've been through, then they usually will engage very well. Very good point. And um, at the risk of overstating, because we use those two words, responder assist, over and over again, don't we? But anyway, let me give a plug to their website, because I think there's some stuff on there, isn't there? There's some cultural awareness stuff that is available to everyone. So look it up. I'd like to move on to another topic, though, and particularly uh, to you, Andrea. We know that feelings of guilt can interfere with successful treatment. They can get in the way. And in recent years, we've seen a lot of interest in a related construct that we call moral injury. And uh, I know that this is a particular area of interest for you. So can I just uh, get you to start off by telling us what it is? What do Mm. we mean by this Mm. idea of moral injury? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Look, I I think this really came about where people started to recognise that some of the the guilt, the shame, the, the anger that people were experiencing when they had a condition like PTSD wasn't really about a fear-based event, but it was more about an event that they experienced that involved a transgression of their moral values, that something that happened that they may have seen, something they may have even done themselves, that felt as though it really went against what they believed to be the right thing to do. Um, And so the sorts of responses to that that we started recognising where people had feelings as though what they'd seen or what they'd done really changed their sense of who they were as a person and really caused them to feel as though they were in some way compromised, that they couldn't go back to who they were before because they'd they'd seen or done something. And I guess the nature of uh, emergency services work, uh, first responders as well as, of course, military, but First responders, it is the nature of the work is such that these experiences might come up yeah, not unusual. Unfortunately, not not unusual. That mm. that's exactly right. And the extent to which people can be sort of emotionally or psychologically prepared for that sort of event 
is probably just as important as preparation for more uh, threat based events, which is where a lot of the resilience mm. training goes into trying mm. to help people to cope with those sorts of events rather than a focus on some of the really awful circumstances and, and situations that people confront. Not quite the same as PTSD. No. But there's a bit of an overlap maybe? I think there's a bit of an overlap, but, but I think what we see is that there's an overlap in some symptoms. For example, someone with PTSD might avoid certain situations or being with other people because of a fear-based mechanism, whereas they might also avoid other people if they have moral injury, but it's more because they feel ashamed of what they've seen or what they've done. And so on the surface, the symptoms can look quite similar. But when you actually delve into what's driving those symptoms, you, you find that there's a different uh, mechanism. Yeah. And so you probably want to be addressing it in a different sure, way. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Having said that, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to go into it in detail, but there is also presumably an overlap in treatment as well not necessarily identical treatment, but elements would be the same. That's right. I think that it's another conversation, but most of the treatments do have overlap, but then go beyond standard PTSD treatments. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, a lot of our listeners will be health professionals in a variety of settings. Do you have any advice for them about how they might recognise or how they might be sensitive to or aware of the possibility of, of moral injury? I think it's just that really open inquiry about the nature of the experience that people have had and understanding what the meaning of that has been for them. So just like we don't go in assuming someone has PTSD or depression, we actually do a proper assessment, find out exactly what their symptoms are, what their understanding of that is, and it, it emerges, I think, mm. in, in that sort of mm. inquiry. It's a fascinating area, isn't it? I, I will probably say this, uh, you know, multiple times, but the fact is we could devote a whole podcast to any of these topics, could, really. Absolutely. So, you know, mm. it's, uh, it seems a bit mean to kind of just squash it into a few minutes, but that's the way it is. The one final thing I wanted to talk about while we're talking about challenges is this issue that Jane raised earlier of substance use and, and using particularly alcohol in Australia, I suppose, as a coping strategy, as a symptom management tool. That gets in the way of treatment, obviously, or can potentially. Yeah, look, it certainly can potentially depending on the severity I guess and you know if they're drinking to the point where they're really sober uh, unable to think clearly and really are behaviorally quite disturbed as a result of it then we probably would think about you know doing a, a detox or managing the alcoholism or the substance abuse disorder first before we go in and start treating PTSD or something like that but I think at the same time, you know, you can very effectively treat uh, mood disorders and trauma and PTSD more generally and treat the alcohol or substance abuse disorder at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that's sort of what the guidelines yeah. really say as well, yeah. that, you know, where there is some research evidence to support that, that yeah. treating both... Mm. At, at and I suppose the logic of, of saying, you know, you shouldn't, we shouldn't really be taking away one crutch and no, then still leaving right. with a yeah. different... But anyway, yeah. but I quite agree that if, you know, the person can't get to a session yeah. sober or whatever, it's going to make yeah. it difficult. OK, look, I'm really sorry, but we have to move on and we're going to bring in our, our next guest. 
One of the big challenges, I think one of the big questions we have often when we're working with first responder populations is around issues of return to work. Questions about whether the person should go back to their previous duties, for example, or indeed are they capable of any work. It's a really difficult question and to help us explore these issues, I'm really pleased to be able to welcome our next guest, Dr. Tony McHugh. Tony is a clinical psychologist with nearly 30 years of experience working with a range of groups, but particularly with military veterans and first responders. And of particular relevance to our discussion today, among many other things, he's a very busy man, Tony, I should say, but among many other things, he is currently an advisor to WorkSafe Victoria as well as the Police Association of Victoria. So welcome, Tony. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. Very pleased to be here. As I was saying, really, Tony, as a health professional, it's not always easy to raise issues about return to work, to talk to our clients about the possibilities of going back to work. I wonder if you've got any, any brief thoughts on, on why you think that is and, and hints about um, how we might best engage with our clients around work matters. Conversations with emergency services workers are typically difficult, Mark, for a range of reasons. Uh, their load of trauma, the nature of their exposure to the kinds of events they've seen, the type and intensity of the physical and psychological injuries, the time from exposure to the time of presentation, which is often quite some time, how they experience their roles, how they're treated in the workplace. So it's really important to understand they can often be disappointed and angry, grieving, have a loss of identity and pessimistic about their potential benefit from treatment. There's many things that treaters can do in the conversation around return to work. Uh, loss of work is injurious to people. One of the first things we need to talk about with people is the, what we call the health benefits of work. Yeah, that's a really important one, isn't it? Because um, I think people do lose sight of that often, don't they? Uh, absolutely. I think um, both health professionals and the clients yeah, can lose sight yeah. of it. And, and sometimes perhaps conspire with each other, actually, to prevent the person going back. I, I think you've made two brilliant points. And the first is that when we're in work, we lose sight of what it's like to not be in work and how important that is to people in terms of their sense of self-esteem, the esteem they get from other people, sense of achievement, structure of life, a whole range of things. There's many, many things. Mm. The, the other mm. thing to think about, it really, is the, the, the fact that it's possible to do this. Often people are not believing that it is possible to return to work. We must think about things like safety and quality of, of work experience, but it's indeed possible, but it has to be treated as a piece of work. That's a very good point. One of the things we have to do is to instill the idea that it is possible. It is possible to get back to work. And in fact, there are a whole range of structures and mechanisms around to help the worker get back to work. As a health professional, what kind of role do you think I have or other health professionals should have in a return to work plan? Health professionals and particularly mental health professionals, because often these injuries are psychological in nature or secondary to a physical injury, but there's definitely a psychological component there. And we have an obligation to work with clients, but not just clients, systems, employers, the whole group of stakeholders to come up with realistic return to work plans that clients can actually actively engage around and develop faith around them. And I guess liaising yeah, with the workplace, with 
WorkSafe possibly, the, the case managers and so on, which is something I think a lot of health professionals are probably reluctant to do and see perhaps as being beyond their role or whatever. Beyond their remit, Mark. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're actually not correct when they have those views. Mm. It's quite consistent with the code of ethics that applies to a whole range of mental health professions that we actually work for the reasons I've described already, that is the health benefits of work, to help people to get back to work. It's mm. actually part of our charter. Mm. And to not do it, Mark, I, I I think is very deleterious to clients. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very important point. And, and, you know, I think back to my training, which was back in the uh, early 1900s. It was that long ago, but anyway. I don't think there was any mention of, of this kind of stuff, of occupational rehab, return to work. It was all about just treating the disorder. So things have changed a bit. There's still a gap in our knowledge, though, Mark. It's not taught at university. Uh, it was really interesting that we were talking about evidence-based treatment before. This is not taught. Evidence-based treatment is not necessarily given given the emphasis it should be at university and how to implement these things. If you follow a structured process, people can take confidence and return to work in a graduated way with the support of their employers, the system, their colleagues. And that's important to remember, isn't it, for the health professional, that there is help out there. There's, you know, you're not going to be doing it on your own. Yeah. However, I do want to pick up on the point that you made earlier, or you were at least implying, and that is... We have to be realistic, and for some people, return to work, at least return to their perhaps operational duties, is simply not appropriate. Is that a difficult conversation to have with a person sometimes? Can be, but if it's couched in these terms that there are actually four return to work possibilities, same job, same employer, different job, same employer, same job, different employer, which is very hard for people in emergency services. You can't transfer interstate to another police force, for example, and different job, different employer. And when you raise the possibilities and, again, the importance of people functioning in a work-like or a vocation-like, it doesn't have to be paid work. It could be something that gives them meaning. But we're very reluctant, too reluctant to sometimes challenge people's thinking around this thing that is so good for them to be involved in. And that, you know, that's a crucial point for us to remember, I think, isn't it? That if our goal is to improve their mental health, improve their psychological well-being and so on, which it is really, this is a really important component. Mark, can I say mm. that long-term unemployment has been described as injurious as serious cigarette smoking to health, mm. and it's got a strong association with suicide. Mm. We have an obligation to address these things. That's a very salient point on which to just move on from this discussion. But thank you very much, Tony. It's a difficult problem and one, again, that we could have spent the whole session on. But thank you very much indeed for your contributions there. So, Jane, pulling all together what we've been talking about today and what we've heard, do you have any sort of final reflections or key messages or you'd like to leave people with? Look, I think there's a few key messages, I guess. One is there are effective evidence-based treatments out there for the full range of mental health disorders that might present following a trauma. Putting your hand up and seek help early is really important. It's really important for clinicians to be familiar, get themselves familiar with the culture of the organisation of their client and understand where they're coming from in order to break down some of those barriers around engagement. The return to work aspect of their work is really important as well and, and that requires working alongside the employment agency as well as the insurance agencies that might be involved. And I think just finally, you know, a multidisciplinary approach is really important that, you know, it's not necessarily 
one clinician that can solve all of the issues that you're presenting with, but mm. you're really needing to work as a team. Absolutely. So I endorse all of that. And um, we'll just add, I suppose, that we have a range of health professionals listening. And if, if you do want to work to treat these disorders, the other thing to do is to make sure that you're getting some decent training and very importantly, I think, some decent supervision. There are a range of options available. So training supervision is really important. But the bottom line is, as I said earlier, this is a great population to work with. I enjoy working with emergency services. They're fantastic. You know, yeah. it's the most enjoyable population to work with alongside veterans and military, I would say. So. Unfortunately, the clock is against us and we've run out of time. So today we've been looking at some of the clinical challenges of working with first responders who are suffering from mental health problems. In the next episode, we're going to hear about it from their perspective. We're going to hear about the lived experience and we'll be talking to some first responders and at least one partner who've been through all this and have come out the other side. So please do join me for that one. If you want to check out any of the resources that we mentioned today or indeed in any other episode or see the biographies of people who uh, were on today, just go to the landing page of this episode and follow the links. And on that page, you'll also find a link to the feedback survey. We really do value your feedback. So I strongly encourage you to get on there, provide some thoughts about this episode, some comments and suggestions for future podcasts. And you can even provide us with a star rating as long as it's nothing less than four. So, uh, no, you put on whatever you want. It's up to you. So please uh, join me again for our next episode in the Emergency Workers Responder Assist series when we'll be talking to people with lived experience of mental health issues. But for now, it's thank you again to our guests and goodbye from them. So, Tony McHugh. Thank you very much, Mark. And Andrea Phelps. Oh, that's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. And it's thanks and goodbye to my co-host, Jane Nursey. Thanks very much, Mark. It was great. And thanks very much to you all for joining us today and for uh, listening to the podcast. Don't forget to join us next time. Thanks and goodbye from me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mental Health in Focus. Stay tuned for more episodes by hitting that subscribe button. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us a rating.